Hello there. You're listening to Mountain Talk from WMMT. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and for the month of June, we're celebrating LGBTQ History Month. Every Monday this month, we'll bring you a Mountain Talk episode focused on national, regional, or local queer histories, as well as stories about queer life in our region today. This episode is the first in our month-long series, and we're starting with national LGBTQ history by remembering Stonewall. The Stonewall Inn was a gay bar in New York City, where in June of 1969, after a commonly occurring police raid, the queer folks at the bar fought back. The riots were led by trans women of color, including Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, and this historic event marks the beginning of the modern gay rights movement. In today's show, we'll hear two audio histories of Stonewall. The first comes from Making Contact and was produced in 2015, and the second comes from Outcasting, an LGBTQ youth podcast, which was produced in 2017. Over the past decade alone, issues affecting LGBTQ plus rights have changed a whole lot, and they continue to change quickly today. Because of the rapidly shifting nature of these issues, some of the information in these episodes is outdated. When you think of pride, parades and parties might come to mind. It might be hard to imagine that the worldwide LGBT celebrations were sparked by a neighborhood uprising in New York in 1969. At the time, the uprising was heavily criticized. But by 2014, even the president was paying tribute to what began that night at the Stonewall Inn. This year we mark the 45th anniversary of Stonewall, and I know some of you were there. And this tremendous progress we've made as a society uh, is thanks to those of you who fought the good fight, uh, and to Americans across the country who marched and came out and organized uh, to secure the rights of others. But how many of us really remember what happened back in 1969? On today's show, we'll hear about the day that galvanized a generation and the continued fight for LGBT civil rights. I'm Laura Flynn, and you're listening to Making Contact. The first Pride Parade took place in June 1970, marking the first anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. Michael Shirker brings us this oral history remembering Stonewall, the birth of a movement. In 1969, the Stonewall was one of the most popular gay bars in New York City, and like all other gay bars, was routinely raided by the vice squad. The patrons of these bars, many of whom were frightened at having their identities revealed, would quietly submit to any orders coming from the police. Yet, on June 27, 1969, that all changed. The patrons of this bar, with the drag queens at the forefront, decided to fight back against the police. What happened here on that night would spark a revolution. My, uh, I am uh, Gene Harwood, and my age is 80. I'm um, Bruce Merrill. He wants, he also would like to know what your age is. So you My tell age, your age, 78, mm-hmm. yes. When you touched me, when you took my hand, something happened. I had never planned. Being gay before Stonewall was, was a, a very difficult proposition because we felt that in order to survive, we had to try to look and act as, as straight as possible. The uh, attitude, the general attitude of society as far as employers were concerned and landlords, all of these people were very uh, hostile and... and uh, to protect ourselves, we, we had to act as, as rugged and, and manly as possible. name is Sylvia Rivera. My name before that was Ray Rivera until I started dressing in drag in 1961. The era before Stonewall was a hard era. There was always the gay bashings on the drag queens by heterosexual men women, and the police. My name is Seymour Pine. In 1968, I was assigned as deputy inspector in charge of public morals in the first division in the police department, which covered 
south Manhattan from 38th Street to the Battery, including the Greenwich Village area. It was the duty of public morals to enforce all laws concerning vice and gambling, including prostitution, narcotics, and laws and regulations concerning homosexuality. My name is Red Mahoney. I've been hanging out, drinking, partying, and working in the gay bars for the last 30 years. In the era before Stonewall, all, all of the bars, 90% of the bars, were mafia-controlled. They were controlled because the mafia had the right connections. There wasn't, there wasn't that many gay bars. You'd have maybe one, two uptown in the Upper East Side. They would get closed down, and there'd be one or two in the West Side. They'd get closed down, and Midtown, there'd be one, two, three, maybe open. As they would get closed down, they'd move around, and they would dump. I'm Joan Nessel co-founder of what is now the largest collection of lesbian culture in the world. The police raided lesbian bars regularly and they did it, they both did it in the most um, obvious way which was hauling women away in paddy wagons but they did, there was regular weekend harassment which would consist of the police coming in regularly to get their payoffs and in the sea colony we had a back room with a red light and when that red light went on it meant the police would be arriving in around 10 minutes. And so we all had to sit down at our tables. And we would be sitting there almost like school children. And the cops would come in. Now, depending on who was on, which cop was on, if it was some that really resented the butch women, who were with many times very beautiful women, we knew we were in for it because what would happen is they would start harassing one of these women and saying, Ha, you think you're a man? Come outside, we'll show you. And the woman would be dragged away they throw up against a wall, and they'd say, so you think you're a man, let's see what you got in your pants. And they would put their hand down her pants. On Friday night, June 27, 1969, at about 11.45, eight officers from Public Morals 1st Division loaded into four unmarked police cars. From their headquarters on 21st Street and 3rd Avenue, they headed downtown and then west towards the Stonewall Inn here at 7th Avenue and Christopher Street. It was the second time the bar was raided that week. The local 6th Precinct had just received a new commanding officer who kicked off his tenure by initiating a series of raids on gay bars. And New York was in the midst of a mayoral campaign, always a bad time for homosexuals. Mayor John Lindsay had good reason to agree to the police crackdown. He had just lost his party's primary and needed a popularity boost and the Stonewall Inn was indeed an inviting target. Operated by the Gambino crime family without a liquor license, this dance bar drew a crowd of drag queens, hustlers, miners, and more masculine lesbians known as bull dykes. Many were black or Hispanic. It was almost precisely at midnight that the moral squad pulled up to the Stonewall Inn, led by Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine. For some reason, things were different this night. As we were bringing the prisoners out, they were resisting. One drag queen, as we put her in the car, opened the door on the other side and jumped out, uh, at which time uh, we had to chase that person. And uh, he was caught, put back into the car. He made an another attempt to get out the same door, the other door. And uh, at that point, we had to handcuff the uh, the person. From this point on, things really began to get crazy. My name is Robert Rivera, and my nickname is Bertie, and I've been cross-dressing all of my life. I remember the night of the riots. The police were escorting the queens out of the bar and into the paddy wagon, and there was this one particularly outrageously beautiful queen with stacks and stacks of Elizabeth-style, Elizabeth Taylor-style hair, and uh, she was asking them not to push her. And they continued to push her, and she turned around and she mashed the cop with her high heel. She knocked him down, and then she proceeded to frisk him for her, the keys to the handcuffs that were on her. She got them, and uh, she undid herself and passed them to another queen that was behind her. Well, that's when all hell broke loose at that point. 
And then we were, we had to get back into the Stonewall. My name is Howard Smith. On the night of the Stonewall riots, I was a reporter for the Village Voice, locked inside with the police, covering it for my column. It really did appear that that crowd, because we could look through little peepholes in the plywood windows, we could look out and we could see that the crowd, well, my guess was within five, 10 minutes, it was probably several thousand people now, two to 2,000, easy. And they were yelling, kill the cops, police brutality, let's get them, we're not gonna take this anymore, let's we get them. We noticed a group of uh, persons uh, attempting to uproot uh, one of the uh, parking meters in which, they, in which they did succeed. And they then uh, used that parking meter to, uh, as a battering ram to break down the door. And they did in fact open the door, they crashed it in, and at that point was when they began throwing uh, Molotov cocktails into the place. There were a couple of cops stationed on either side of the door with their pistols, like in a combat stance, aimed in the door area. A couple others were stationed in other places, behind like a pole, another one behind the bar. All of them with their guns ready. I don't think up to that point I ever had ever seen cops that scared. When the Morrill Squad officers barricaded themselves inside the Stonewall, Deputy Inspector Pine put in a 1041 call, an emergency help request which can only be placed by a high-ranking officer. That call was mysteriously canceled, and the telephone inside the Stonewall went dead. It took nearly 45 minutes for the riot police to get to the Stonewall and rescue the Morrill Squad from the smoldering bar. My name is Martin Boyce. And in 1969, I was a drag queen known as Miss Mark. I remember on that night, when we saw the riot police, all of us drag queens, we linked arms, like the Rockettes, and sang the song we used to sing. We are the village girls. We wear our hair in curls. We wear our dungarees above our nelly knees. And the police went crazy hearing that, and they just immediately rushed us. We gave one kick and fled. My name is Rudy. And uh, the night of the Stonewall, I was 18. And to tell you the truth, that night I was doing more running than fighting. I remember looking back from 10th Street. And there on Waverly Street, there was a police, I believe on his uh, cop, and his, on his stomach in his tactical uniform and his helmet and everything else with a drag queen straddling him. She was beating the hell out of him with her shoe. My name is Mama Jean, uh, I'm a lesbian, and I guess you would label me as a butch. I remember on that night, I was in a gay bar, a women's bar, called Cookies. We were coming out of the gay bar, going toward 8th Street, and that's when we saw everything happen, blasting away, people getting beat up, police coming from every direction, uh, hitting women as well as men with their nightsticks. Uh, gay men running down the street with blood all over their face. We decided right then and there whether we scared or not. We didn't think about it. We just jumped in. The media covered the riot extensively. The Daily News featured it on its front page. There were reports on all the local television and radio stations. By the next day, graffiti calling for gay power had appeared on buildings and sidewalks all over the West Village. Hastily worked up flyers distributed on street corners touted the night as the hairpin drop heard round the world. And the next night, thousands of men and women converged on the West Village. They came here, back to the Stonewall, to see what would happen next. While trash cans were set on fire, stones were thrown, and sporadic fighting broke out between police and gays, the more than 400 riot police milling around the village ensured that the previous night's violence would not be repeated. But on this night, for the first time, gay couples could be seen walking hand in hand or kissing in the streets. Just by being there, surrounded by reporters and photographers and onlookers, thousands of men and women were proclaiming to themselves and the rest of the world that they were gay. And the crowds grew and came back the next night and for one more night the following week. What happened here on those nights helped to usher in a new era both personally and politically, 
for gay men and lesbians. My name is Jim Forat, and I'm in the mid-60s, along with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, I was one of the founders of the, of the Yippie movement. I remember on the third night of the riots, there was this meeting called by Mattachine Society at St. John's Church on, West, on Waverly Place. We went, and Randy Wicker was running the meeting. For 10 years, I've been going on television as Randy Wicker, uh, the respectable homosexual dressed in dark suit and tie, explaining to people that most homosexuals look like everybody else and behave like everybody else. And uh, when Stonewall began happening, you had chorus lines of queens kicking their heels up at the police and bonfires burning in the uh, corner trash baskets and throwing bricks and stones at the police. I was horrified because this violated everything that we thought of as responsible behavior, that this was not the way respectable citizens behaved. Evelyn Hooker was a sociologist, I believe. Randy had introduced her and she got up and she suggested that we should have a candlelight march, that we should turn the other cheek because gay people were really different, we were really nice, and we had to show how nice we were and stop all this rioting because people were going to get hurt. I remember I stood up and I said, no, we are not going back. And, and people felt the same thing I felt. And we marched out of that room, and that was the night that the Gay Liberation Front was born. That night, in some very deep way, we finally found our place in history. Not as a dirty joke, not as a doctor's case study, not as a freak, but as a people. Remembering Stonewall was engineered by Spider Blue. It was produced by David Isay with a grant from the Pacifica National Program Fund. I'm Michael Shirker. That piece was made available to us courtesy of the Pacifica Radio Archives. To hear the full-length version, visit PacificaRadioArchives.org. What began with Stonewall still continues today. After the break, we'll hear from Michelangelo Signorelli on what it will take to get an LGBT civil rights bill. So you might remember the controversy around Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Critics argued the law would have allowed businesses to discriminate against same-sex couples, but supporters said it would protect individuals following the tenets of their faith. Following a massive backlash, including a threat from several businesses to leave the state, Governor Mike Pence approved a fix prohibiting businesses from refusing to serve people based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Editor-at-large of the Huffington Post, Gay Voices, Michelangelo Signorelli, says while the reversal in Indiana was among a series of recent wins for the LGBT rights movement, bigotry remains a daily reality. At a New America NYC forum, Signorelli spoke with June Thomas, culture critic and editor of Outward, Slade's LGBTQ section, about what he calls victory blindness. It's a central theme in his new book titled, It's Not Over, Getting to Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. One of the main ideas that you return to throughout the book is the concept of victory blindness. What do you mean by that? Well, I really started to sort of see um, several years ago a kind of a disconnect between the celebrations of, of victory that we've had and the facts on the ground for so many people across the country. And a lot of this was what I was hearing on my show from mm -hmm. people and connecting with people online. And, and I felt like uh, the media, the establishment, uh, a lot of LGBT activists, they weren't kind of getting how there was this disconnect. And I found it very troubling. And I really saw how people kind of focus on the wins, focus on the victories. And it almost becomes a, a sort of a psychological thing where you protect yourself by not focusing on the continued bigotry, mm -hmm. uh, by not looking at that. And that's where you sort of become blind to it. You, you don't see it. You're only focusing on the wins, everything getting better. It's going to get better. It's going to uh, all be great. And not seeing how the backlash is organizing and how people are experiencing hardship all across the country. They're still deeply closeted. They're still uh, dealing with bullying. If they're young people, they're still far too many uh, taking their lives. So that's victory blindness. Mm -hmm. 
is it really so bad for us to focus on the good, the good news in our community? No, I, I think it's important to celebrate the good news. It's, it's when we focus on the winds and, and don't see the gathering storm out there, uh, don't see the organizing that's going mm -hmm. on, or downplay it. People convince themselves we've won so much. That's the other thing, that we've won so much that it's at risk, mm -hmm. that we better be careful and not rock the boat. So then we start to pull back on the approach, and we, we start to say, let's be magnanimous. This word magnanimous has crept up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I talk about it in that first chapter with Mozilla and Brendan Ike, the uh, CEO who stepped down, and, and too many of our people were saying, this looks bad that he stepped down because he was a homophobe. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just found something problematic with that. And they said, well, we should be magnanimous in our wins. Uh, we've had a banner two years. This was another one. Well, banner two years, what is that? <laughs> we need civil rights in this country. So I think there's a lot of that kind of talk. You also say that, this is a quote now, gay people have always needed to be confrontational in order to make great strides forward. Um, first, I'm wondering, do you, know, do you still think that today? I mean, it's kind of easier to, to think about being confrontational 45, 30, 15, 10 years ago. Shouldn't we be, no, I'm not gonna say shouldn't we be magnanimous, but um, it's, First of all, it's hard to get people to be confrontational. There's a resistance to doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but do we still need to be confrontational? We do. We still need to uh, be very assertive and challenge and demand uh, full civil rights. I think we got on this road of asking for piecemeal rights that really did not serve us at all. I mean, I think, I think in the 70s and 80s, uh, early 80s, we were sort of more demanding in that sense. Uh, we were asking for a full civil rights bill, a federal civil rights bill. And then we got on this road of, well, there's been a backlash. Anita Bryant came, and AIDS came, and all these ugly people came, and let's just ask for this little piece of legislation with religious exemptions. And it was the non-confrontational ap approach. And, you know, let's let's just sort of, uh, you know, ask for little piecemeal things. And I think ACT UP, certainly, and other groups showed us that, no, you need to be confrontational, but not just with direct action and, and protests, which I still think is very important, but also in what you demand. You, you need to demand all of it, otherwise you're not taken seriously. It seems really difficult to drive something like a LGBT Civil Rights Act, which has been attempted now for decades, for more than 20 years, right? But why can we sort of mobilize a protest but not somehow grab yeah, civil rights? We, we won a media battle, and that's mm -hmm. what keeps happening now, these media battles. But have we won any rights out of that? Mm -hmm. the, the law in Indiana was mitigated slightly, uh, but it's still broader than the federal uh, RINFA. It, and in Indiana, there is no statewide law protecting people. You know, yes, there are in localities, in some cities, Indianapolis, but local ordinances are toothless. They don't really do much. You need a statewide law, you need a federal law. So um, there was no win there. Arkansas, what got lost in the entire thing, under the radar, with none of the gay groups, HRC, Human Rights Campaign, the media, nobody, and grassroots activists were, were screaming for attention. Under the radar, the Arkansas legislature passed a bill that rescinded all existing local ordinances and the ability to pass any others. So basically, you cannot even pass a law in Little Rock to protect uh, LGBT people, but they worded it in a way to get around the Supreme Court's ruling on this with the Colorado case many years ago. Um, they got around this by not naming LGBT people. So they said, unless you're, you're a group that's already protected in state law, you can't pass a local law. So it becomes this circular, <laughs> circular mm -hmm. thing. Um, none of that got discussed in this. So Arkansas didn't need a RINFRA totally. That was overkill on the part of the governor to completely pander um, to bigotry. And in the end, we have both states with no civil rights, and we won a battle where Walmart came out and spoke with us. 
spoke for us, and then mm -hmm. they're giving money to Ted Cruz tomorrow. Right. So you know, they're, they're, all of those companies are still giving money to um, anti-gay politicians. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to get those civil rights laws, those positive laws, passed? Because it has been twenty years. Why can't? Yeah. yeah. What's this? How do we do that? Well, we need to. This gets us back to being confrontational. Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, we need to really be uh, organizing at every different level, and we have so many ways now that we can organize. Uh, in addition to, you know, protest um, out on the streets. I mean, we have so many different ways to organize online and and pressure uh, entities. I mean, we should have been, and there should be an organized campaign, and our national group should be organizing people to now, you know, target these companies and these politicians to actually pass the laws that right, we right, need. Right. I say we need to, um, you know, organize in Washington more. We need to put ourselves out there. We need to engage in civil disobedience. We need to do all of the things we did in the old-fashioned way, uh -huh. and we also need to do all the new stuff uh, online and really kind of try to galvanize people. So let's talk about some of those terrible laws that are on the books already. Um, you write in the book about, I believe it's nine states that have no promo homo laws, as they're called. What are those, and what does that even mean? Right. Well, um, this gets to really another sort of long-term strategy and why it's really far from over, because what we really have to do to battle homophobia transphobia uh, is change and revolutionize education, uh, change how people are taught from K through 12 about uh, queer people and about homosexuality, about gender identity, about sexual orientation, and also what California has started, and they're the only state, uh, and it really hasn't started yet, the textbooks I think are coming out this year, but talking about the contributions of prominent LGBT individuals in history, um, we really need to make it so that people don't go in the closet. <laughs> that, that has to be the way we battle the closet. Um, and we really need to start teaching about uh, the reality of, of who we are. But um, obviously, that's going to be difficult um, in and of itself, but it's even more difficult because we have a bunch of states where actually they ban even any discussion of homosexuality. Uh, Arizona is one of them, Mississippi is another. Uh, Tennessee tried to pass it, and everybody knows that was called the Don't Say Gay Bill, and it blew up as a huge controversy, and thankfully that was uh, something that didn't become a reality. But we have to get those other states to repeal theirs, and then we have to move on this really difficult task of passing laws that would actually incorporate it into the teaching in the way that the African-American civil rights movement is taught in school. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to kind of to engage more people? Well, I, I think it's true in every movement. It's always a few people doing everything, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, it's always a small crowd. And if you think about it, even during the most dark and, and horrible days of AIDS, it was still just this small group of people who would get in the street and protest, right? Um, but that small group, you know, if it was a thousand people at a protest, were able to do uh, enormous things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always going to be, um, as with every movement, a small activated group. But um, what people are able to do, and I, and I think we've seen it, you know, with, with every group. I think we just saw it with Ferguson and, and, and other issues for African Americans. Um, cap, really capitalize on these events to bring in new people. And you know, you have people say, you're exploiting a, a suicide. No, we are using this horrible event of, that portrays the, the bigotry we uh, live with to activate people. Mm -hmm. That is what we are doing. Um, each time you do that, I think it brings in more people and it, it activates them, and, and they, you know, everybody has their story who's an activist of what it was, what mm -hmm. event it was that brought them in. Right. So we have to use those events.
That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Thanks to New America NYC for making that piece available. To hear the whole interview with Michelangelo Signorelli, go to newamericanyc.org or our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcasts, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. We just heard an audio history of the Stonewall Riots, produced by Making Contact in 2015. Next up, we'll hear an episode from Outcasting, in which LGBTQ youth interviewed Dr. Carla J., a longtime activist and author. It was a typical police raid where, by all accounts, the police came in to be paid off by the bar, and instead of that happening, people uh, started fighting back. It was a hot night. So people resisted. People gathered in the street. They taunted the police. The crowd just kept growing, and it got bigger and bigger. There was always a risk your life could be ruined. That was the horror of it. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Drew. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Sarah talks with Carla J about the Stonewall Uprising, a series of riots at a New York City gay bar in June 1969. The uprising is widely seen as marking a turning point in gay activism. Carla is a longtime activist and author. She was involved in the second wave of feminism and was the first female chair of the Gay Liberation Front. She is also a retired distinguished professor of queer studies and women's studies at Pace University in New York City. This is part one of a two-part interview. Carla, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Give us a sense of what life was like for gay people during the 1950s and the 1960s. The experience varied for gay men, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender people from region to region and um, different races and ethnicities. But I think that for a lot of people, the experience was being alone and uh, living in kind of silence and isolation. I think that the commonality for most people was being afraid to speak of one's sexuality, having difficulty finding other people like oneself, often thinking that one was the only person to be queer, and often many people experienced shame, isolation, feelings of depression and suicide, and had a very not great experience being gay, although there were some pre-Stonewall groups like the Daughters of Belitis and Mathishing. So there were some political groups for people who lived in places like Washington, D.C., or Philadelphia, or San Francisco, and a little bit in New York. Uh, But that really wasn't for most gay and lesbian people. How common was it for people to be open about their sexuality in those days? I I think that people were really fearful. I mean, there were some people who were out, but I think that it was really the exception rather than the rule. And every reason not to be out. If you were out, you could uh, lose your job. You could be fired. You, if you had children, you could lose your children because by definition, you were an unfit parent. If you lived at home and people found out they could tell your parents and you'd be thrown out, you would be expelled from universities. So all manner of terrible things could happen to you if people found out that you were gay, you probably would lose your apartment or home. I think that people were out selectively. I think people told their friends, they told some relatives, they probably were more likely to tell a sibling 
than apparent, and people probably knew. As always, I think other people always knew before you told people. But I think that people were quite cautious about telling people that they were gay or lesbian. or, or And certainly people didn't use the word trans back then or bisexual. People just didn't say that. We New Yorkers tend to focus on activism on the East Coast, but it was certainly happening in other places as well for decades before Stonewall. Gay men and lesbians were working to increase society's acceptance of queer people. The Mattachine Society for Gay Men and the Daughters of Belitis for Lesbians were the best-known early homophile organizations. Talk to us about the early homophile movement and how it developed. The homophile movement arose in part out of World War II, and there was a feeling among gay men who developed Mattachine that they had served their country honorably, and then many of them were discharged dishonorably when the war ended. In the 1950s, during the Red Scare, many people who worked for the government either lost their jobs or they were afraid they would lose their jobs because they were homosexually oriented. And so uh, groups like Mavishane sprang up to counteract this homophobia in society. And the Daughters of Belitis started in San Francisco. And part of all of these groups had a social function to let others know that we existed. What did these organizations actually do to try to make life better for gay people? They had demonstrations for example, at the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia every year on the 4th of July, in which they demonstrated their um, call for civil rights. But one of the things that really differentiated them from later groups was the Mattachine Society had a dress code at such demonstrations, and women were supposed to wear skirts or dresses, and men were supposed to wear suits and ties. And the idea behind this was to show that we were just like everyone else, that we ate with a knife and fork, but we were different in bed. And that was sort of their philosophy to have us accepted by heterosexual society. And that was the thrust of the early homophile movement. Some of the issues that groups like Mattachine and the Daughters of Belitis were aiming to solve concerned the fact that homosexuality was seen as a mental disorder. Tell us about that. They often cooperated with psychiatrists and psychologists in the hopes that some of the more liberal psychologists would do studies that would prove that people who were gay or lesbian, were not ill. Because one of the common diagnoses in the 1950s was that homosexuality was a mental disorder. And certainly it was in the psychiatric manual as a mental disorder. And some uh, frontal lobotomies, which means the removal of the front part of the brain, that was done probably more on lesbians than gay men, but gay men probably suffered more from something like shock treatment to cause them to have an aversion to images of other gay men. That sounds like something you'd see in a horror movie. Some of that's still going on, but it's much less accepted now because most people today don't think of homosexuality as a mental illness that has to be cured. In the 50s and 60s and earlier, it was difficult for gay people to even exist. But these activists were doing more than merely existing. They were announcing their existence, or they were trying to. There must have been additional challenges. You could not be listed anywhere. We didn't have the internet. So the way that people often found out about things was through a phone book. And the phone companies would not accept a listing like gay, lesbian, bisexual. Moreover, even though the New York Times had used the word homosexual as early as 1926, 
they were not going to accept an ad for a gay and lesbian organization, nor would any magazine accept such an ad, including probably left-wing magazines like The Village Voice. So unless you went around sticking flyers on telephone posts, there was very little way to get the word out. Even after Stonewall, part of the challenge for us was to reach other people like ourselves in a society which didn't even allow us to um, say who we were. I mean, Oscar Wilde and Lord Bosey, his lover, they called it the love that dare not speak its name. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, you just couldn't even say the word. Looking at those restrictions through the lens of our experience today is sort of shocking. Dealing with these challenges must have put a lot of stress on the organizations, making it almost inevitable that differences in approach would arise. During the 1960s, sentiment against the war in Vietnam grew, and a less assimilationist and more radical gay rights movement began to take hold. Conflict grew between the older homophile organizations and the newer, more in-your-face organizations and their strategies. Tell us about that. Those of us who were in the gay liberation front considered ourselves radical. And we, not all of us, because we certainly were a very diverse lot, but many people who were in the gay liberation front came out of the feminist movement, the left, the Students for a Democratic Society, which was a uh, a leftist group on campuses. Some people had been part of the Venceremus Brigade, which had gone to Cuba to help people cut sugarcane, and so they were supportive of the Cuban Revolution. There was really a diversity of opinions. The war in Vietnam was widely opposed by young people, in part because it was a draft. And younger people, who tended to make up the bulk of the Gay Liberation Front felt that the point of liberation shouldn't be to get people into oppressive institutions. We felt that there was going to be a revolution. I mean, this is the overriding thing. Many of us hoped there would be a peaceful revolution, but many people thought a revolution was coming, like the revolution in Cuba. We came out of the 1960s. And we felt that you were going to have to choose which side of this revolution you were going to be on. Given these rising internal tensions, it's no wonder that there was an explosion of sorts, Stonewall. Can you tell us about the historical importance of this uprising? What's significant about the Stonewall uprising is not the fact that patrons of the bar fought back. What's significant about that is that we organized after that and formed a different kind of organization. And that new organization that began to coalesce right after the Stonewall uprisings, that's what caused a major shift in history. And the fact that we remembered that uprising in an annual march, and which is still commemorated today, that's a significant shift in history right there. And it was coming in a way that was absolutely inevitable on the backs of the women's movement, the civil rights movement. There were uprisings and and struggles of Puerto Ricans in New York. And, you know, in the context of this, People have to remember that there was resistance by gay men and lesbians as early as the 1930s. And there were other raids in Los Angeles, um, San Francisco. Um, There were raids around the country that we probably don't even know about where small bars were, were busted. So the historical shift here really has to do with what happened in the wake of this event at the Stonewall Inn and the fact that people decided to 
organize and not break with Mattachine, because what happened after the Stonewall Uprising was a sign was put in the window where Mattachine put up a sign that said, you know, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but they said, people go home and be peaceful. And this was not what people were going to do at that moment in history. You were involved in the second wave of feminism. Were women able to make themselves heard in both assimilationist and more radical groups? There were very few women in Madison. There were some women in the men's group, like Barbara Giddings, who worked quite closely with the men. But the women worked separately in their own group, in the Daughters of Believers. And so the way that the women dealt with that is that they formed their own group. In the Gay Liberation Front, the women were definitely a minority. And there were difficulties around being a woman. We often had difficulty being heard in a large group in a a room. We were meeting in a church basement without a microphone, without Robert's Rules of Order, in a kind of uh, chaotic scene. There often were problems for women to be seen and heard. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Sarah is talking with Carla J. about the Stonewall Uprising, a series of riots at a New York City gay bar in June 1969. The uprising is widely seen as marking a turning point in gay activism. Carla is a longtime activist and author. She was involved in the second wave of feminism and was the first female chair of the Gay Liberation Front. She is also a retired distinguished professor of queer studies and women's studies at Pace University in New York City. This is part one of a two-part interview. It's hard to imagine today, but back then, it was difficult for gay men and lesbians to even find a place where they could dance together. People danced at Stonewall, but it wasn't legal, and when the bar was raided, the lights came on and everyone had to stop. What did people do instead, particularly women? One example I can give you, which is an interesting story, I think, particularly for young people to hear about the Gay Liberation Front, is that every month the Gay Liberation Front had a dance. And many of the people thought that a dance would be a great way to, first of all, get people out of the mafia on bars. Secondly, they thought that more people would join our organization. Only a few people came to meetings. Most people just wanted to come and dance. But for women, when we went to this dance, the women couldn't even find each other on the dance floor because there were so many men and the men tended to be bigger than the women. So the women complained that there we were and we couldn't even find each other. You know, we didn't even know where people were. And we, we only had bars. There was only one woman's bar in New York. There were a few men's bars, but there usually was only one woman's bar at a time. So we told the men that we wanted our own space. We wanted our dance. So the men first gave us a room inside the dance that would be women only. That was an improvement, but it wasn't good enough in the end. So in February of 1970, we organized the first lesbian dance ever. There had never been a dance for lesbians. and. It it sounds unbelievable that we you know that this had never happened, but it wasn't easy to put together. Some women tried to go to the bar to hand out leaflets to tell people about the dance. They were thrown out in the snow and threatened. We put the dance together, and we were afraid no one would come, so we tried to get straight women from the feminist movement to come, and some of them came to support us. So you had the dance, and then what? Towards the end of the dance, about 2 or 3 in the morning, when we were cleaning up the dance floor and 
putting stuff away. The mafia came. These big guys in trench coats, they were about six foot five each with guns in their belts. They filled up the door and they told us that we were selling liquor without a license, which of course was illegal, although we were getting around that by asking for a donation for a drink. We weren't actually, quote, selling, unquote, the drinks. When the men appeared, there was a big sound of, you know, there was a rush for the bathroom as women who had pot flushed their pot down the toilet. And I had an assignment. I rushed out of the back exit and I called our lawyer to come and help us out. She called the police because she figured they weren't the real police and more police wouldn't matter. And uh, she also called the press because the press with cameras might protect us. And when the real police came, the mafia ran off. But by that time, some of the women had been beaten up. So this gives you an example both of what it was like to be a woman back then in the Gay Liberation Front and also what it was like to try to do something like that for the first time. It really wasn't pretty, you know, to just try to have a dance. I, I don't know if this even, you know, can make sense to somebody of your generation that we couldn't dance, you know. We couldn't dance in the bars either, really. It was illegal for women to dance together and for men to dance together. So in the bars, they had like a buzzer. And when the police came in, they'd push a buzzer or something, and these lights would go on in the bar, and you were supposed to either stop dancing, or if it was a mixed bar, you were supposed to switch partners and grab someone of the opposite sex so you wouldn't be arrested. <laughs> I don't know if you can picture this. I can try to imagine it. So for me to kind of answer your question, in some ways, yes, it was difficult to be a woman, but we had so many problems staying alive back then. It was like the guys weren't the biggest problem. Yeah, I can understand that. And the trans people, too, remember, we, you know, women weren't the only ones who had problems, you know. I was very friendly with one of the trans people. They just made a, a movie, it just opened about Marsha P. Johnson, and there were very few... They called themselves street transvestites, and there were very few of them, too, and no one you know, listened to their issues. There were only a few trans people in our organization. There were only a few people of color. And, you know, it's fair to say that many groups felt not heard, underrepresented by the group, and oppressed. I think there were many people within this coalition who felt uncomfortable in many ways. Yeah, especially with the transgender rights movement, even still today. One of the things we have to remember about our lot as queer people is that other groups, if let's say you're Italian-American or you're Jewish or you're Catholic or you're Puerto Rican or you have an identity, you're a woman, you grew up with this identity, except as a woman where you grew up in the patriarchy, right? But for many groups, you grew up with other people in your identity with a bond. You may have been a minority, but there were other people in this with you from the beginning. And one of the things that's unique about being queer is that the only thing that really holds us together is that the people who hate us see us as one thing. We have very little in common except that we're all getting shoved in the oven together. And that's a big togetherness. And I see trans people and gay men and bisexuals and all these people as my brothers and sisters, but a lot of people don't because it's the same thing as, you know, being a lesbian and going to an event. And what do you have in common with the other women there, except that you're all looking for someone of the same gender. 
it's a very thin connection to to actually find somebody. You have to find more things to glue you together, to hold yourself together. Yeah, despite all the progress we've made since Stonewall, there are still a lot of divisions within the LGBTQ community, and we still have a lot of work to do. But looking back to the Stonewall riots, even with the divisions within the community, there was a common enemy, the police. Take us back to that hot night in June 1969. Okay, I was not at the Stonewall, but it was a typical police raid where, by all accounts, the police came in to be paid off by the bar, and instead of that happening, some change was thrown at the police. People usually were checked for ID, and if you were over 18 years old and you had identification, they would generally let you go. Although there was always a risk that someone you knew might be notified based on your identification. There was always a risk risk that even though you weren't even arrested, your life could be ruined. That was the horror of it. But there was resistance. People resisted the bar. They were marched out of the bar. The police called backup. And, you know, a riot started. People uh, started fighting back. It was a hot night. So people resisted, people gathered in the street, they taunted the police. The resistance then went on for quite a few days after that. And because it was the village, people kept coming by. The crowd just kept growing and it got bigger and bigger. It was a pretty big uprising. It was reported in the New York Times and in the Village Voice. And a lot of us didn't hear about it right away because... Um, In 1969, I mean, people like myself who were not well off, I didn't even own a television. So I heard about it probably on the radio the next day. Stonewall became legendary after the riots, but what was it like as a space for the gay community? It was not a great bar. You, You wouldn't go there if you were a lesbian. It was the kind of bar that was primarily for what we called street people, young people, people who kind of hung out in the street. Bars were not very mixed socially by class or, or by race. This is a fascinating conversation, but we're out of time. We'll continue this conversation in the next edition of Outcasting. Carla J., thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Carla J. is a longtime activist and author. She was involved in the second wave of feminism and was the first female chair of the Gay Liberation Front. She is also a retired distinguished professor of queer studies and women's studies at Pace University in New York City. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Ian, Becca, Ari, Jamie, Callie, Adam, Andrea, Brianna, Emma, Sharin, Jessica, Sarah, Alex, Lauren, Dante, Josh, and me, Dhruv. Our assistant producer is Alex Mintz, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Again, the number is 866 488 7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Dhruv. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for a continuation of this interview with Carla J. 
That's it for the first in our month-long series of Mountain Talks, celebrating LGBTQ history. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes again, please visit our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer. And from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.